You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. People don't want big brands. They want brands that have an honorable code of conduct. They want brands that not only produce great products, but they want to know that the company is also being honorable. The founder of The Body Shop, Anita Roddick. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In 1976, a British businesswoman opened a small shop where she could sell her own cosmetics and skin and hair care products. But she also wanted her business to reflect her ethical and moral values about human rights and animal rights and the environment. She called her business the Body Shop. And today, the Body Shop has over 3,000 stores in 65 countries, but it still adheres to the values and ethics that Anita Roddick infused it with. In 2001, she wrote a book called Business as Unusual. It was a kind of a look back at the 90s, the sometimes turbulent 90s for the body shop. So here now from 2001, Anita Roddick. Was the title your idea? No, I wanted to call it, as I say in the first graphic, in the first paragraph, uh, management by falling apart at the seams, but they were a bit wimpy. And America, everything has got to be triumphant. So they called it the triumph uh, of Anita Roddick, which makes me smile because it's, <laughs> life is never triumphal, is it? <laughs> now, I, now, I did wonder, how does this book differ in content and in tone from Body and Soul, the book you'd written, I, I guess, about 10 well, years ago? Well, this is really the last decade when an amazing things happened. It was a, a no-holds-bar. These were, and the Body and Soul was much more of an autobiography up to the time, you know, when I had just not only started the body shop, but when all the initiatives and the ideas and the social change was happening. And the last, this one is really about the last 10 years and how those initiatives, how they were formed and what happened. But it's got some, I mean, the mess in America that we had, you know, with the opening up of the stores, the corporate stalker that I had for four years, the fights, you know, the, almost a battlefield fights with some of the biggest corporations like Shell on immoral issues, um, the campaigns. And I wanted, it, I, wanted it, I wanted to claim it, really, because it's, you know, it's 25 years now, and I wanted to write my story, and I wanted no other person to interpret my story. But there's a lot that has happened in the 90s in the last 10 years that I suspect you hadn't counted on when you first uh, when you first opened the store in 76. I don't think you could have foreseen, who could have foreseen all the things that you'd be going through and try to stay true to those original principles. The, that was never a problem, staying true to original principles. I just found that when the bigger I got or the more successful or the more authoritative, you actually then could devote more. So that was, the problem is institutionalizing success because we're renegade, counterculture, very rapidly. Radical, um, and, and and very very counterculture in many ways. So how do you get that in when you know as you get bigger and bigger? The worst thing entrepreneurs loathe they loathe hierarchy. They try and you know pull away at any given time. And then when hierarchy comes in, rules and regulations come in, and that's the hard thing. And managing sameness and managing. 
oh, golly, I can't stand the regulations. You know, it's have an idea, you know, push it out like a genie in a bottle and somebody grabs it and, and runs with it. Now you've got to, you've got to, oh, it's, it's too timid for me now. <laughs> Timidity is what happens when you get bigger. <laughs> well, at some point you have to resist, the, the rebel becomes the establishment at yeah. some point. That's what you have to resist. Well, you do. And the biggest resistance came in actually quite, you know, not so long ago with the stand that I took against the World Trade Organization. And I had, I have to say thanks to the book of which I'll give much benediction to it. The publisher gave me a one heck of a huge advance of which I immediately uh, gave it to the organization uh, on the Seattle protest. The the really the education where the process were four days in the whole of Seattle, every, every auditorium, school, union, church, wherever, was opened up for public education on the the reality behind the World Trade Organization. And so that was a brave thing to be. I probably I was probably the only CEO that stood and was batten charged and I bulleted and was tear gassed on the stand against uh, against huge corporate crimes and our, our one our one protest was putting human rights back into an economic agenda you know human rights civil civil social justice and environment and that was all that was a protest in a nutshell so that wasn't easy and um, so I'm seen as very renegade still but I mean, the alternative is death. The alternative is being, in, being accepting corporate crimes. And I do want to be a corporate criminal. The, the other is taking of that business is about private greed. And it's not. It's about public good. Like the Quakers, you gave it away. You supported your stakeholders. You made sure your, your employers were well cared for. So I, I really do belong to a different different viewpoint of business. Well, there's no, there's nothing wrong with making a profit. It's just that no. if you're in business only to make a profit, you're going to have some problems. And I do. And look at these big organizations. Hence, we've got this whole rise of the vigilante consumer that is going alongside this huge growth of the non-government organizations who I think rightfully pointing their finger at business as so-called practices. And they're, they're working with the human rights lobbyists, the ethical investors and civil disobedience groups. So there's, you know, what they have to worry about now is their reputation because the corporate reputation is everything. And being challenged, I mean, it's Seattle. Who was being challenged? All of the cool companies that we think are so cool. Gap was being challenged, um, Starbucks, Nike. People don't want big brands. They want brands that have an honorable code of conduct. They want brands that not only produce great products, but they want to know that the company is also being honorable. And that's the thing, as you said just now, they have to be great products too. Yeah. And nobody's, no, no matter how principled you are, if the product doesn't work, no. nobody's going to buy it. No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. That, and that, has, that everybody knows. And it's not a guilt purchase. You know, it's disingenuous to think that that could happen. And that's why, you know, cause-related marketing is really tacky. The no of being seen to be doing something good so hopefully you will have a swell in your customers coming in it's disingenuous what companies which have an amazing sense of creativity and advertising and marketing should take those god-given skills and say right how do we market an issue for public awareness and that's nothing to do with sales but that hasn't been we certainly haven't been copied on that because we turn our shops into action stations and think nothing to do, nothing to do with skin and hair care. With voter registration, you know, human rights, um, uh, freedom of, uh, of unrepresented peoples and nations. But it, I tell you what it does for our staff. It's a sort of Monday to living type of, you know, week. They don't go to work thinking, oh, God, this is Monday to Friday death. You know how dull. 
After this short break, Anita Roddick explains why you don't see big, splashy ads for the body shop. Now back to my 2001 interview with Anita Roddick. Why didn't I see a, a commercial for the body shop during the Super Bowl last night? Um, something about spending the money in better ways. I mean, why would I... Well, number was probably the most expensive commercials now on the world, in the world. Uh, number two, I, what was it? What is Super Bowl? Is it, is it... It is the great sporting event of the year. <laughs> Was there a lot of things about a lot of lot of criminals were playing in it? Oh or yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Some, let's, a few let's move on from but, that subject. Uh, well, uh, uh, in, in, in general, though, I mean, the, the, why don't the, we the question, the, Yeah, the question was simply well, meant, why don't I see big billboards well, and ads? I and, tell you why. One in the old days we couldn't afford it, and then when we could, we didn't know what to say, and we couldn't think of anything. What could you say about a moisture cream? Like every moisture cream works, or bubble bath. I don't want anybody. Um, I'm too intelligent to think anybody's going to have an emotional reaction to a, you know, a bubble bath or have a relationship <laughs> with that. So what we've done, and by happen chance or brilliant accidents, we have become still are one of the top so-called brands in the world. To number 27, one company declared. What we do with that money that we don't spend, we do other things, gorilla types of things. You know, we, we, I mean, we've got ads, but they're bizarre. Like we have these loads and dozens of trucks, these huge trucks going up and down the highways of England. So instead of something having boring like body shop skin and hair care, we have wonderful you know, wonderful statements on them. We've got one one that reads, if you think you're too small to be effective, you've never been to bed with a mosquito. <laughs> and <laughs> and we've got, you know, so we've got things that slightly shame the government for their behaviour or non-behaviour or there's, there's great... We actually have allocated some 12 of our trucks in missing kids. And 75% of the missing children have been found. Now, if that doesn't bond you with the community, more so than, you know, squillions of dollars on an ad, what does? And that's so easy to do. Now, not to pick on Coca-Cola or something like that, but I can't imagine them doing something like that. Well, you know what I said to Coca-Cola once? I was at a major meeting. I was giving a talk in, down in San, um, New Orleans. And I said, well, you have probably the biggest distribution network in the world, bar none. Every village I'm in, Africa, Nicaragua, there's Coca-Cola. Why can't you use that network to do, you know, to, to hand out free condoms or hypodermic needles or, what, or serums, not needles, serums? What, so you, you work along with, with public health on that? What an amazing strategic alliance that could be. But what are they afraid of, though? I think you know what it is. I think it's something of poverty of imagination. I think there's, you know, one main thing is you travel in America. There is huge economic poverty. And I was a couple of weeks ago working with the Black Farmers Federation in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. And what, what an endangered species that is, the family farm in this country, especially the black family farm, looking at what we could directly purchase to put in our products, which we've come up with some good ideas. But, you know... When you deal with poverty, you've got to give people the tools to get out of poverty. And, and halfway, the tools aren't there because there's nobody thinking there are tools. At TV, that was set up as a vehicle for education, public education. Every shack I stayed in, every farmhouse, there's TV going on, like celebrity squares or Hollywood squares or whatever it's called. And then there's a sort of a notion of spiritual poverty. The poverty that doesn't get a nation outraged, the wealthiest nation in the world, by the fact that millions and millions of people are living around the world, billions, are living on less than $2 a day. So what you have is a comfort. Gandhi called it this timid, 
kindness, though you, you can intellectually say, this is really sad, you know, that people do this, but that, that intellectual timidity doesn't move to action to do something about it. Do you find it easier to talk to people now than you did 25 years ago about things such as animal testing and, and principles like that? I think it's easier now because I have such a, a, a very strong platform. You know, I'm at the level where you can talk to politicians, where you can knock on the door to be heard. And that's, that sense of authority comes from the success of the business and also the fact that I'm a very, very renegade business leader. So that I'm going to come in with a different viewpoint. Um, yes, I mean, 12, 15 15 years ago, I was booed out of Harvard on some of these, this notion, well, by booed, I meant like timid reaction, i.e. no reaction, um, in terms of businesses for social responsibility. Now, they're doing courses. Now, so, so it's not mainstream yet, or it won't ever be because of the World Trade Organization, but the notion of language, um, of the ideas, and many students say, we don't want to work for rapacious organizations now. We want to work for, for corporations or companies that protect the family, you know, that educate the workforce so that, and, and things, and that the workplace is more as equally as a production of more products, but also production of the human spirit. And this is actually the way it's got to go. Now, you've said in your book that one of the things, one of the keys to being a successful entrepreneur is to maintain an optimism, a great optimism. How do you maintain yours? I, I think most, no, nobody talks about this in business school, but there is a pathological optimism with people like myself, entrepreneurs. I think it's because I'm Italian and I eat a lot of tomatoes, but we cannot see a problem. We're also, we have more aligned with a crazy person than we have with being a business person because we see things others don't. And, as, you you know, and we come up with ideas like the genie in the bottle. We cannot manage anything. So if nobody's coming behind us to catch those ideas and process it, well, you know, once the idea is gone, we're onto another idea. So we're pathologically optimistic. We we shape. We are obsessed with our own personal freedom. So our canvas is our livelihood. We never really call it business. Uh, it's our livelihood that matters. We're also mostly social entrepreneurs. So we think that life is more is no more complicated than love and work. And you're making this product, this idea, for things beyond your own self. You know. Accumulation of money. None of us. There isn't. And Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry is one of my best pals. Money, the accumulation is of no value to us. And all. And for me and my my family, uh, every penny is given away. You know. You know. My wealth is in my shares, and my kids are in thirties now, and they know they won't inherit one penny from my wealth, and that they have the responsibility to give it away. So there's a different thinking than this notion that the greed is good. And you must have fun while you're at it, too. Oh, I love it. I mean, just going down to the Black Farmers Federation, and I was talking to this woman, Mrs. Murphy, 89 years old, this tiny little woman with the face of a cherubim. Okay, she only had one tooth. And she, <laughs> and she walks her fields with me, and she still tills the land. Or uh, Ulysses, who's as big as a brick house, he's about 20 foot wide in diameter, and as he's walking me through his fields, telling me about, you know, his reverence for the land and how he's feeding America and he's feeding the people, he suddenly burst into choruses of amazing grace. Oh, well, I, oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, that's, that's storytelling, and I think storytelling is the myths and legends of a, a great nation. And for me, I'd, if, if I could do anything in my life, it'd be like a studs turkle. Well, this is almost your own little miniature version of it. I hope so. <laughs>
<laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to add or any question you felt I should ask you about your book that I didn't? Ask me why I did it. Oh, why did you write this book? That was a, that, I should, I should, that's see, you see, I should interview you. <laughs> um, why did I write the book? I wrote the book because it's the sort of a metaphor, the end of a century... You know, when I got it completed, or the end of a millennia. And also, it's a rit- 25 years. It's fairly much a ritual. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to claim my, my story. And women in my age want to be heard and less absorbed, absorbed by what they look like. And I had an incredible story of which there were no signs, boats, no books written about how to do it. And I wanted to write, and I didn't want it relegated to some fancy, smart writer from Harvard. It was my, and I wanted to keep it intimate and funny and graphic, and a dip in so a woman, you know, holding five kids, running to work, whatever, she can still dip in and get a laugh. Anita Roddick died in two thousand seven. She was sixty four. Did you know that you can find hundreds of other episodes of Now I've Heard Everything at our website, heardeverything.com. In fact, I would encourage you to go there now and listen to my interviews with two other entrepreneurs who turned something modest and small into something huge. Kinko's founder, Paul Orfila. So there are customers online making Xerox copies at USC. I figure, well, why aren't they making copies at UCSB? I didn't have to do a lot of analytical studies. (laughs) It was emulating somebody else that was successful. And the founder of USA Today, Al Newharth. The things that I enjoyed relating the most because I learned the most from them were my failures rather than my successes. I've blown a lot of things in my life. A lot of things I've tried didn't work. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my interview with another entrepreneur, a businessman who in the mid-60s started a business that eventually turned him into one of America's richest businessmen, but which also made him the target of attacks by conservatives and religious groups who wanted his product banned. My 1986 interview with the founder and publisher of Penthouse Magazine, Bob Guccione. Nothing in connection with the human body could possibly be obscene. If you accept the Judeo-Christian philosophy that man was made in the image of God and we have a problem with nudity, then we better complain to the manufacturer. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.